Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome into the One Up Podcast. I'm very pleased to welcome in the last American male tennis player to get to world number one, the last American to win a Grand Slam final, the 2003 U.S. Open, somebody who uh, not only loves golf, is invested in golf as well. Uh, very pleased to have Andy Roddick on the One Up podcast. Andy, let me, let me start with this. It's, it's like we used to say this as a throwaway line. How are you? <laughs> How are you? <laughs> we're, we're, we're doing great. Thank you for asking. Um, yeah, it's, I, I think everyone's dealing with it in their own way. I think we are, are uh, extremely aware um, that our family has dealt with nowhere near the worst of this thing. Um, you know, we, we're, we have two young kids and we can still walk around in our backyard and, you know, they don't really know what they're missing yet. So, um, you know, as, as far as pandemics go, we're, we're doing well. You know, it's interesting because for someone like yourself, um, it's not like you are missing your job every day, but you have a lot of interests. So I, and, and so does your wife. So I want to take you back if I can, like, let's go April 1st, May 1st, and now we're approaching June 1st. Where is your mind kind of meandered on those various like, like mile markers in time as far as like, What's going on now? What's going on now? And what's getting ready to go on? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And uh, you, you, we were talking briefly off air, and it's, it's just a strange thing because you see whether it's a decision made uh, in, in policy in your state or, you know, uh, a, a trial run for uh, any sort of treatment. I, I, I try to base my, uh, my uh, very uninformed opinions on, on, on what data is coming out as far as uh, those type of things go, but it's a it's a three or four week uh, delay on on every decision that that's made. So you know we're we're kind of just rolling with it. I, I think um, as we learn more, you know, it, it seems like it's tough to to transmit it outside if someone is asymptomatic. So that's a good thing. I think we're just going to have to kind of learn how to best practices with dealing with it. And it's as you know, for us, it's like I, I I don't know what's right and what's wrong. It's hard to decipher information these days, but. For us, it's as easy as, listen, if, if we go out and, you know, masks are effective, great, let's wear them. And if they're not, then we wore a mask when we shouldn't have it. It's not that big of a deal. So, um, you know, we're just trying to kind of kind of trying to cruise through. And uh, my wife's always on planes. I, I, I think uh, I've been on a plane every week of my life since I was about 13 years old. So it's been it's been a little bit different. But, you know, at the end of the day, we, we, we do know that we're, we're lucky uh, as far as this goes. And um, frankly, if you take away. Uh, golf and tennis from me, I become a lot more productive in other business interests. So it's been, uh, it's been, uh, it's been a, a bit of an awakening. You know, um, I had Herb Street and Billis on here a couple of weeks ago, and I think that they are they're immersed in the two sports most reliant on the atmosphere created by fans. And 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 you played a sport where there's an intimacy to you know primarily two people on a court 
um, and and they feel like it's a peekaboo. It's like we're 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 here to watch these two people, and it can be very concentrated as to people's focus. Golf is very expansive, so the 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 challenges that the two sports have, I think, are very different. Do you think golf is well positioned among all the sports when it does resume to have? some level of not only normalcy, but also maybe attract some people that otherwise would just kind of take it or leave it and they generally leave it? Yeah, I mean, you hate to use words like opportunity during a, a pandemic as it relates to a sport, but I'm going to. I, I, think, I think golf has a, has a real opportunity. I mean, as, as, uh, as we've seen already with the, the match at Seminole and then um, the match the other day with uh, you know, the, the, the four legends, um, I, I, I want to say uh, it outrated uh, the Last Dance documentary <laughs> with Jordan. And so, um, you know, it, it's not just an opinion. It's factual that people are starving for content. Uh, golf has a, a lot of a lot of advantages over over the other sports um, as far as the way they can put on events, as far as, uh, you know, it's generally spaced uh, even when there are tons of fans, you know, outside of three or four groups that people kind of, clamor towards it, there is a little bit of space to operate. So um, I, I definitely think that, that, that golf has a, a real shot to uh, uh, grow its fan base. What about, what about tennis? Because if you look at the two players, you go, well, look, that, that seems like there's a natural convenience to that, but there's so many other little nuances to the sport you played. What, what, what is tennis going to do? It's hard because uh, on, on a surface level, as, as you kind of mentioned, it's two people, they're far apart, it's not a contact sport, so maybe it should work, but it's a hard thing. I've, I've, I've been on the phone with uh, you know, some of the, the decision makers in, at the US Open, at the Australian Open, and it goes past just the actual matches. The matches are actually the easiest part of it. Um, but when you're pulling, uh, you know, you, let's go through the US Open, you have 128 players in the main draw of, of the singles, uh, at least that many in doubles. Uh, you're, you're going to get into the mixed doubles, seniors, juniors, you know, you're at six, 700 players all coming from different parts of earth. And I, I realize the international nature of golf, but, you know, let's say as an American in golf, you can dictate your schedule to really kind of, you know, travel maybe an hour or two a week, you know, whether it runs up the California coast through Texas, it kind of flows nicely. Whereas tennis is like, you're in Memphis one week, Dubai the next week, back to California. It's a, it's a little bit, uh, maybe tougher, um, you know, a lot more international events. Um, and it, it's just hard. I mean, you, you have, you know, 400 people in a locker room where the square footage is 6,000 feet, uh, you know, in, in damp spaces with showering. And it's just the logistical parts of, of, of trying to operate a, a tennis event are, are really difficult. Do you think that these slams are going to get played before the end of the year? My personal opinion is that they, they won't. Um, I, you know, I just, it's, it's just a hard thing because then all of a sudden, let's say you do everything right, Gary, and, and, and you prepare and maybe you have trailers for spacing and maybe you find some other locker room issues. Maybe there are protocols that every player has to do, whether it's a, you know, a doctor and testing. And that's another thing. We have to get the testing right before any of this is a, is a realistic, um, realistic possibility. Um, you know, it's just, it, it's just hard. And, and let's say someone test positive on day three of a two-week event. The event's done. It's over. You got to pull a plug. I mean, you saw with the NBA when, when uh, Rudy Gobert all of a sudden tested positive. And, you know, credit to uh, Adam Silver, who I think is, is, is one of the best commissioners I've ever seen. It was, it was a six-minute <laughs> deliberation. He goes, that's it. Season's over. 
And I don't know about when it became extremely real for you. I was actually on a, a golf trip with some buddies and we read it at dinner and it was like, oh, oh, this is, this is what it might be. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned Rudy Gobert, and I was thinking to myself, okay, so in the PJ Tour rolled out a 37-page um, document regarding their guidelines and their practices and procedures when they return in a couple of weeks. And, and one of them is, you know, if a player pings a positive test, you know, that player is going to have to withdraw from the event and then, and then be quarantined in the city of which they, they happen to be playing. Do you think as it applies to, you know, you're, you're up there in Charlotte, let's say training camps resume or, or they get started in, in the NFL and the NBA comes back. Do you think that because whatever it is that we know, and I don't know how much we actually know, that there will not be the type of reaction as there was back in March? Or do you think it'll be the same? Um, well, one, I think we know more. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're learning more kind of uh, every week as far as uh, – who's most at risk. It's not just a young old thing. There, there are other factors. So I, I think we know more than we will in March and, and you know, that that's going to continue, but just removing one person when you can be an asymptomatic carrier for, for six days, the, the whole tricky thing. And, and, and listen, I'm, I'm no doctor. I just can regurgitate some of what I've read, but the, the, the toughest thing is the, the asymptomatic carrying. So you kick that person out of the tournament, you kind of have to go back and track every person he's been within six feet of for the, the, the previous week. And I'm not sure how you do that. It sounds good in practice that, okay, hard line, if they test positive, they're out. But you're going to have to do some, some backtracking to see who else may be at risk. And the last thing you want is, is to, to form some little cluster on your watch, especially when you're an entity as, as big and as important as, as, as a PGA Tour or an NBA or, or, or an ATP or a WTA. You know, Andy, you mentioned the match and the two iterations. You know, the first one, the, the golf course itself, um, and I know you have a fondness for Seminole, as do I, and then there was there was something mystical about it because nobody had ever seen it before. Um, and then the second one you mentioned, we were talking about four of the most important sports figures, cultural, culturally relevant people yeah. in, in America over the last quarter century, and they pinged a huge number. Do you think that there is traction for a series like this as everything else resumes to find certain spots for it and to use golf as a vehicle to do this? Well, I mean, just look at the money raised. Um, you know, you're, you're talking back-to-back -back weeks of each event, I think, raised in excess. I think Seminole was in excess of $15 million, and then the match was in excess of $20 million, and that's before they get to all the auctions. You know, they're auctioning off the golf carts they use, and they're auctioning off everything. And, and, and I think we, we have to be thankful for the vacuums we exist in because I know golf does a ton on the charitable side already. Uh, that, that culture is kind of baked into the fabric of golf and the same in tennis. I mean, we've had uh, just absolute icons, not just in our sport, but of social change, whether it's Billie Jean King, uh, Arthur Ashe, uh, you know, Venus and Serena and what they've done for literacy, Andre Agassi, it's, it's just kind of baked in. So absolutely. Um, you know, the, 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 the tennis events I've seen are, are, are kind of awkward. You're going to get your own thing. But there's something refreshing about seeing the golfers, like, throw it on their back. You know, they're wearing shorts. They're walking up the fairway. They're getting their own numbers. Sometimes they shoot the wrong thing. It, it, it's kind of fun entertainment. I don't know if that's the solution two years down the road. But as far as, uh, you know, most sports, I, I feel like they're trying to put a Band-Aid on a surgical procedure. It feels like, you know, golf has the opportunity to just apply a Band-Aid to a cut. You know, it, I don't think it's as severe uh, of a difference. And, 
um, props because I know these these uh, these events came together very very quickly, and and, and that's sh that's surely not easy. But in order for something to happen quickly on a large scale like that, people have to say yes very quickly. So I applaud uh, Mr. Don down at Seminole and, and the people involved with the match and, and, and Peyton and Tom and Phil and Tiger and Rory and you know they they had to just say yeah let's do it let's figure it out it's raining it's pouring great let's go do it it's bigger than us I thought it was great. Yeah, I, I agree. I, th I thought it was too. And, and actually, I thought that the weather made it even more compelling because, you know, they kind of had to dig in. And, and look, Phil and Tiger are not going out and playing a friendly in, in no. weather like that. They're not, they're not, you know it. They're not doing it. It's interesting, you, you know, the U.S. Open, and they probably still do it, the Sunday before the fortnight, you'd go out there and you'd kick it around with celebrities. But there was a compromising to you did not serve at 130 miles an hour. You would you would placate whoever it was that you were playing doubles with or mixed doubles with. Yeah. In golf, Tiger went out and striped every tee shot, and 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 was there was an engagement to the way that he tried to play that he did not have to dummy down the way he played. And the thing, Andy, that I found interesting is that being around Brady a little bit, Tom can run hot. He hates he hates failure, and he was in a dead man spiral for six holes and I know he wanted to throw a club but he didn't he knew that wouldn't be good form there was something about that I found to be very compelling did you yeah and it's weird because you'll play playing golf we in in, in it, it's it's amazing I'm, I'm jealous of a lot of aspects of golf when I kind of look at tennis whether it's the ability to participate in a pro-am that's better for the tour in general but actually get work in while, while you're doing it. We, we can't really do that in tennis. I don't play much tennis now, and I can't decide if it's just because I'm, you know, I, I, I played it for so long or it's just because I can't find someone to play with. You know, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a bit of a different thing. Um, you know, but it, it's funny because you, one of the great things about golf is you meet a lot of new people. Uh, there's really no place else that I would gladly small talk with a complete stranger for four and a half hours, but golf kind of has that thing. And it is a telltale sign. Anybody's, it's easy to get along with someone when they're playing great, but when they're playing badly, that, that's kind of like the true sign of, of how someone is maybe. I think there's a real read there. And credit to Tom because he was frustrated. You know that he just didn't want to do it. He's, he's better than he was playing. You know, you, you hear stories and he, he plays better than he showed. And uh, obviously there's a little bit of an ego involved. You don't become Tom Brady without wanting to perform under the gun. So uh, props to him. He turned it around. He made the, 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 the miracle birdie there at seven. And uh, it, was, it was all good from there on out. You know, one of the, you know, it's interesting. I've never, you know, I've seen Peyton swing a golf club a handful of times. Actually, the first time I saw it, Chris Fowler was doing a feature on him when he was in college. And Joey Kent, who was his really good wide receiver at Tennessee, they were hitting balls in a really just, you know, modest looking range in Knoxville. And his golf swing was awful. Now, his golf swing is not that aesthetically that pleasing now. He's got like an old man game. And it's very, like, utilitarian. It's, like, really functional. It, I mean, you've obviously played some golf with him, and you've got a relationship. I want to talk about Sweden's Cove. He's got old man game that's, like, that travels, doesn't he? Well, it's strange, though, because it, it, it actually, if you think about it, it makes sense. And obviously his, his arm was way better, but he never had the biggest arm in the NFL. Right. There were, there were guys, you hear guys, like I think of an old quarterback like Jeff George, where if you give him Peyton's brain, <laughs> he's the best quarterback in history, you know. And so Peyton is, is hyper intelligent. I'm not sure if you saw the screenshot that was going around of his, uh, the notes he had on, uh, on his card for the practice round. Yeah. And his, uh, you know, just 
my take on it is he'd rather be effective than look pretty. You know what I'm saying? So, and, and he's extremely effective at whatever he does. I, you know, we, we, we all watched it forever uh, in the NFL. I mean, his last year in Denver, uh, you know, I, I think he would tell you he was throwing, uh, he was throwing some ducks out there and ended up winning the Super Bowl. Um, you know, so he is, uh, he is a plus prospect at just figuring things out. You know, the, the, the Sweetens Cove relationship is interesting to me on a lot of levels because I live in a little town outside of Orlando, Winter Park, and we've got a 100-year-old golf course. Yeah, yeah. Nine-holer, nine municipal golf course that, that had charm to it because of its bones before. And then Keith Reb and Riley Johns, who were, you know, some of the most important people who worked for Corin Crenshaw, came in and, and did a restoration it's our chapel of golf. I'm uh, Andy. I'm there. I've heard it's great. Yeah. A week. There, there's something. There's something going on in golf about about nine holes, but something more than that about stripping away layers that I think intimidate people about playing golf, including you know, you know these these monstrosities of clubhouses that you pull up to. You've never been there before. You're uptight. You may make a good living, but suddenly you feel like you're inadequate. Why do you think that's happening in golf? I'm not sure. Um, you, you know, I, I, specifically to Sweetens Cove, there there was just no budget. <laughs> you know, <there> was, <laughs> when when Rob Collins built it, I mean that's that's one of the things that attracted me to the project at first, and it started with me and a, a, a friend of mine named Mark Rivers. When you know he's the least golfy out of our entire ownership group, and he's like, I'm just telling you, there's a story here with this nine hole golf course, and uh, you know, but it's it's weird because. A lot of times when I get asked about Sweetens Cove, it, it frames itself as, well, Sweetens Cove or, you know, the ultra exclusive, you know, I go, the beauty about golf is that there's, there, there's flavors for everybody, you know, yeah. just because you enjoy Sweetens Cove doesn't mean you can't have a blast at, you know, wherever you love, you know, but the, the thing about golf, you know, the one thing about Sweetens and Rob Collins, he goes, I want to say yes more than I say no. And it's a very simple mantra and it just makes a lot of sense. He was never concerned with anything but the golf course. And now, uh, you know, it's, it's funny, it's created this, uh, this faction of, of loyalists. I say it's the first golf superstar that the social mediums launched, um, you know, and, and it is true. And then all of a sudden we go in and it's like, well, you know, we should probably put a bathroom in. We had Brad Faxon do a putting green and it's been a, it's been a really fun project, but uh, you know, our biggest challenge when we went in and actually had some resources was, was not to actually mess up or overstep with the culture that had already been built at Sweden's Cove. You know, how do you, how do you kind of blend together the things that you guys are doing there because you rolled out the bourbon and yeah. how does that give people an idea of, of how this tapestry can can be effective and and that you guys won't lose money it's not about making a zillion dollars but but how can you weave all this stuff together and make it effective well the, the it's 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 two separate businesses one one inspired by the other um you know the tradition of, of a shot of whiskey uh on the first tee at sweden's cove and then we, it was just the culture of someone would you know you'd have a, a group of eight one would tee off then one would take it then the other would tee off then they would leave the bottle for the people behind them and it was just a simple gesture but it was like, we're all here. We're all sharing the same day. We're going to talk about our experience afterwards. And, and we just kind of liked that. So we were attracted to it. And we basically said, are we, are we arrogant enough to try to start a bourbon? Um, you know, when we don't much about it. But the, the story made a lot of sense. And uh, we have uh, an unbelievable, the only female master distillery in, in Kentucky's history is Marianne Eves. And so 
listen, we, we, we know what we don't know, right? So all, all decisions that were bourbon-based, we, we, we had to punt to Marianne and said, just do it, blend, hand blend, 100 barrels. Let's make an extremely uh, high quality product. If we come in and it's, you know, Peyton Manning's bourbon and it's just low quality, it, it loses it. So the, uh, the ability to create press with someone like Peyton is a double-edged sword because if the quality doesn't add up and the product's no good, then it, it, it becomes a cheapened version of itself very quickly. So it can go either way. But um, as far as the golf course goes, uh, it was just little things, right? It was, it was we, we didn't even have software for inventory in the pro shop. It was basically, we, they, and they were amazing, but you would order based on feelings. And so it's like, well, we should probably have some sort of organized metric for the, for the retail and, and credit to them. They weren't, they weren't, you know, it, it wasn't a, a horrible business. They were slightly under and it was, you know, it, it depended on weather and, and all that. But there, honestly, there were some simple fixes to, 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 to make the, the golf operations part of it uh, extremely sustainable and, 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 and kind of a low stress operation. But um, we just feel like the story of the golf course afforded us, uh, you know, other lanes of opportunity uh, attached to the Sweetens brand and, and uh, especially the culture that, 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 it, that it kind of represents. You know, it, it, you know, during this time, you know, people have a lot of time to read, to watch. Um, and, and Malcolm Gladwell, and I don't know if you've read any of his books. I've, I've read all of them. They're, they're interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and he's always been, you know, very anti-golf. He finds it to yeah. be frivolous, utterly and totally frivolous. And, yeah. and I'm not surprised because he, he's never played golf, so he doesn't know what yeah. the value is. Um, it's not about necessarily striking good shots. Um, but, but do you think that, that golf is more redeemable or can be more redeemable than maybe a lot of people make it out to be? Yeah, and I actually remember a very specific, and I, I, I actually really like Gladwell also, I remember a very specific uh, episode of his, his podcast, uh, Revisionist History, where yeah. he did this whole thing. And he, I think he was walking outside of, he, he did this whole kind of dramatic walk around, I think it was Brentwood in, uh, in, uh, in L.A., um, and his, a lot of his points were valid, but I don't know that he was exactly understanding the, the human element uh, of golf um, for all the points that you made. And, and I think the, the lane that Sweetens Cove can, can really help is I, I feel like if Gladwell went there, he would, he would get it. You know, he, he would kind of drop. He wouldn't, his eyes wouldn't be drawn to the gate in front of the fancy courts or the, or the hedging that was keeping people out. So I, I think uh, for people that want a different – uh, golf option and a different introduction to golf. We'll we'll, we'll gladly uh, maybe not right now, but when this is over, we'll gladly gladly shake your hand and, and say welcome to Sweetens. We'd we'd love to show you what golf's all about. We'd love to represent the culture or at least introduce you to the culture that exists in a lot of places. Uh, you know, they just it, it's the same culture. They just have fancier bathrooms, is all. No, it's it's true. I, I would you know you guys would be you guys would do a very good job of of kind of baptizing him into the culture of golf. I think if, if he walked around Lions Muni with Ben Crenshaw, yeah. if he walked away and still had, had the bug up his rear end that he has now, then I, he's a lost cause. And, you know, there's, there's no chance for him. Yeah, I mean, and listen, it, it's not going to be for everyone. I don't think no. everything be for everyone. Um, you know, he, he might have already made his, uh, his mind up about it. And I, I, he could probably, you know, it would it'd probably be a very compelling debate. I don't know that it'd be a slam dunk either way, but – um, what I would encourage people, if they have a certain um, opinion about golf and it's it's a negative one, would be give it a chance. Go with someone who understands the ins and outs. You know, I would I would want my son around it. I think it 
it, it teaches a lot of a lot of great lessons. Um, and and it's certainly uh, for me post tennis career, it's it's been one of one of the best things uh, in, in my life to kind of be entrenched and make great friendships. And um, it, it's been a, a real backbone of of my social existence since uh, since tennis finished. You know, uh, um, I've always said. And I, obviously, I, I, I always love the game, and I'm lucky to, you know, to cover the game. But I've always said, don't run from your history. The history is, you know, there's some bad history there. Sure. Um, but but the, I've always said, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Clear and Present Danger with Harrison Ford. And he's in the Oval Office talking to the president. He finds out that the guy who was the drug runner, who was his buddy at the University of Michigan Law School, uh, was, was a bad guy. And he said, oh, God, yeah. what do I do? And he said, just don't say you were friends, say you were great friends. You gotta embrace, don't run from your history. And, and that leads me to this, this point. You mentioned Venus and Serena. I think it's one of the great, forget sports stories, I think it's one of the great American stories yeah. of our lifetimes. Uh, and I think Tiger is as well. Urban centers and golf and tennis, what more can they do? What should they do to, to try to foster interest and participation not at the elite level but just yeah. in a part of their lives well it, it's funny because the the, uh, the 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 general thought around tennis is that it has to be played at a uh, at a at a club and it, it's funny when you run through the list of uh you know people who have made it you're talking about venus and serena williams uh andre agassi's dad uh was was a doorman at caesar's palace uh, from Iran. I mean, it's it, it, in you, you look at a uh, Novak Djokovic who came from a, a, a war torn uh, country. Um, Anna Ivanovich, I remember there's a story she learned how to play, they somehow got a net to the bottom of, a, of an empty pool, and that's where she learned to play tennis. So, uh, my, my dad was a uh, he, he ran his farm in Wisconsin when he was 13 years old. And when my parents got married, they lived in a, a trailer. So, it, it's it, it's funny because the, the reputation of things doesn't always represent. Uh, the reality of things. Um, and, and so I, I think that's important in, in, in messaging. Listen, we are for everyone. We, you know, we, we, we actually have, uh, it's not anecdotal evidence. This is, these are our champions. These are the people who have made it in our sport, who have dominated our sport, who have carried our sport. Um, you know, so I, I, I think uh, when we just deal in, in, in the, the topical five or 10% of each thing, it, you're, you're in danger of missing out on the, on the biggest parts of whether it's golf or, and or tennis. You know, along the lines of books, there, I've, I've read several during this stay-at-home time. Have you read The Sports Gene by David Epstein? I haven't, no. Okay. Um, it, it's a really interesting it, – it has a lot of clinical um, study information on, on nature versus nurture as it sure. applies to sports performance. Uh, he's also written a, a newer book called Range about how generalists can thrive in a specialized world. I, I would reckon both – recommend both to you because you, I think you would find them interesting. If you had to do it over again, you have very good size. Would you have played tennis? If you had to do it all over again at, at 12 years old, you had to make a, pick a lane. What lane yeah. would you pick? Uh, it would be tennis or, or, or baseball. I was pretty good at baseball, but then we moved. And, and you know what? I, I, I think I would still, I think I would still choose tennis. Um, the, the international nature of things and, and the kind of cultures I got to experience, um, which probably wouldn't have been as much of the case had I played baseball, um, you know, traveling, you know, to Hong Kong by yourself when you're 15 and staying at a Salvation Army and just having to figure it, figure it out, um, I think were, were amazing lessons. Um, you know, so I, I don't know that I, I would change anything. And people ask, they know my love of golf, and they say, well, would you have played golf? And my counter is, 
would I have, would I enjoy golf as much as I do now if it had been my profession? I, and I'm not sure that the answer is yes. So um, I'm, I couldn't be happier with, I, I don't play tennis that often. I play a lot of golf. Um, my first love is tennis uh, and, and, and certainly always will be, but it's hard for me to go out and play horrendous tennis and have a good attitude about it. <laughs> Whereas golf, I can, I can chop it up and the, the expectation isn't quite the same. You know, the, um, in, this, in this book, Sports Scene, it, one of the things that he talks about is this study done by this guy, uh, Wolfgang Schneider, in 1978, of German junior tennis players and trying to identify innate ability. Of, and by the way, Boris Becker and Steffi Graf were yeah. part of this study. Uh, and it also, one of the, the, the guy, Wolfgang Schneider, said that, that Steffi Graf was the perfect tennis specimen and that he also thought she would have been a, a, an Olympic-level 1,500-meter runner. You agree with yes. that? I think, I, think, I think saying Olympic level and leaving at that is actually offensive to Steffi Graf's athletic ability. She is, she is unbelievable. And, and it's, it's so weird. If you asked her that question, she would want to crawl out of the screen because she wouldn't want to acknowledge herself as, as great. I mean, she's, she's about the most humble person uh, of her accomplishment level that, that I've ever seen in my life. But um, as, as far as just, just raw athleticism, I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty uncanny. I mean, it, she's, she's amazing. You know, the, the thing that's interesting is that to elite tennis players, if you listen to people who really know, and obviously you do, you do, you didn't not only play, but you have a great understanding of the proclivities that are required nuances picking up things it's kind of like you mentioned baseball that a lot of major league baseball players have 2010 vision it's very hard to get to that level because of you know the nanoseconds from a ball leaving the end of the fingertips of a, a major league pitcher you're doing yeah. a lot of this based on you know things that other people just simply can't do sure the innate ability who is the most skilled person forget the 10,000 hours and worked harder than anybody when you went out on a tennis court and you went, this person is blessed with the most innate, just natural genetic ability I've ever seen. Who was There's it? A, so when it comes to like just reaction time and eyes, like you were talking about, like just being able to pick something up, yeah. uh, Agassi was, was amazing. Like he could pick up a serve and take, he was the first guy before strings and equipment where he would take full swings at returns and just square them up and it would go back faster than it came. Um, athleticism there's a there's a french player named gail Mumphies who yeah. covers the court in three steps um you know you 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 give him the ten thousand hours and uh everything else and you know he, he's an he's an all-time uh as far as athleticism now as far as like nuance in your hands where you know someone works really hard and you get to neutral just by a little three inch movement like roger his ability to accept pace and kind of understand where the racket seems like an extension of his hand um, McEnroe was that way where he could kind of like accept someone else's paces and neutralize with very simple body movements. Um, you know, and then, and then as far as just like pure athleticism where I think he would have been, you know, a great running back in the NFL and is, is Rafa could run through a brick wall. I mean, I said on, uh, I've been doing some work for tennis channel during the pandemic. And I said, um, you know, not a lot of 17 year olds have biceps as, as big as my head when they're 17, you know, it, it's the guy is just a specimen, but, you mix that just obnoxious body that he has <laughs> with the humble nature, with the gritty mentality, with, um, you know, tennis IQ, 
it, you don't see that kind of full package very often. And, and we're seeing three on the men's side right now who kind of all have that mix. And it's, it's pretty exciting to see. You know, golfers, golfers, if you ask any of them, whatever they've accomplished, what's the one swing you'd like to have over? They all have it on, yeah. they have it at the ready, you know, and, and you can go historically through Colin Montgomery, 18 at Wingfoot, Tom Lehman at Congressional and go on and on. Do you have a point? See, usually with tennis players, it's not, it's not, it's not a volley. It's not a serve. It's usually a point. Do you have a yeah. point you'd like to have over? Um, yeah, I'd like to have two points over, about two points away from Wimbledon about six different times. <laughs> I'd like those. You give me, if you give By me the way, I was at the beach and I watched every single point. And when um, Roger, who I love, said, you yeah. know, I've been where you are. And you went, no, no not really. <laughs> yeah, I was like, no, man, you got, you got six, you, got, you already got six in the bank, man. You don't, you don't know. You, you, you knew like when you were like 19. Um, no, but Roger's, Roger's amazing. Um, I, I don't really have regrets. I think um, the, the shot that people would talk about is I missed a, I flagged a high back and volley against Roger in that final in, uh, in, a, in a breaker. Um, it wasn't so much the shot. I just, at the last minute, like you, you get drilled into your head from when you're a kid. If you're not sure where the ball's going to land, you always hit it. Right. So you'd rather hit it and, you know, you still have a chance of winning. I, I latched at one. I thought, yeah, I, I still think it might've been going out. There was a bit of a crosswind and I kind of at the last minute just snapped at it thinking I might as well make a play on it. It was the wrong decision. So I, I'd like that decision back, but I mean, that's, you know, I, who knows how it shakes out, even if that goes well, I, I just don't know. It's not something I really um, think about too often, but that would probably be the expected answer. Yeah. You know, it, it, you talk to different athletes and, and some will say, will, will say like you did and, and with, with an authenticity to it that you don't think about it very often. You know, golfers, I think some of them, you know, are not shattered, literally broken people, but, yeah. but, but whether it's a singular event or, or an injury or things that go sideways, because they've got to do it alone, like you had to do it alone. Is, is your interest in golf what is it? What is the primary root of the interest? Is it the fellowship that you get? Is it the competitive, you know, friction that, that can be generated amongst friends? Well, what is it that what is the most overriding redeemable aspect about golf that you have made it a part of your life? I think there are, I think there are two things and I don't want to have to choose between them. Um, there's a, there, there's just a, an element of process, right? So I, I tried my entire life to get better at something. Um, and I can still do that with golf. I just don't have to be an absolute psychopath while I'm doing it. You know, like I was in tennis. I was horrendous. I was, I was pretty selfish. I'm amazed my wife stayed with me. But um, with, with, with golf, I can, there's a process to things, but it's more laid back. And then there, there, there obviously is the, the social aspect. And, I, you know, another thing that's amazing about golf is going and seeing and experiencing new places. You know, you can go anywhere in the world for tennis, and it's the same dimensions on the box. You know, it, the surface is different. Um, the backdrop might be different, but um, you, you don't really hear much about tennis court architecture. So, um, you know, so I, I, I think those type of things are, are, are what attract me to it, just kind of the overall thing. But also, I, I think it's just um, the, the, the initial attraction was wanting something that I could have a process in uh, without it kind of bringing out the worst qualities that I have. <laughs> you know, one, one of those places that I think is different in a lot of ways that the golf course, the firmness, the, how fast it is and, and fiery, but it's the culture is, is what Congaree wants to be. Yeah. They've already 
uh, started to be. You're involved. Uh, I've, I've got, uh, I'm proud of, of being involved in the modest way that I am. Yeah. Um, I think it's next level type of life-changing uh, experiences. Uh, this is not a cosmetic thing. This is a roll your sleeves up. Um, and why were you attracted to this? I, obviously, it's natural when you start to hear about it. But it, did it take 10 minutes? Did it take an hour for you to go, okay, this is different? Um, I, geez, I, you know what? The, the, the difference was is that an hour felt like 10 minutes when I was there. So it's, it's tough to get a, a, an actual grasp on, on the timing of it. But, um, you know, again, it's, it's, it's one of those things where this beautiful place that's tucked behind a long road to get to um, pretty exclusive, but it's just based in absolute altruism with, with Mr. McNair and, uh, and, and Mr. Freakin. And it's their way to give back. And it's, it's just amazing that the first question when there's uh, a mutual interest on, on involvement is, uh, you know, it, 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 it revolves around a charitable donation. And we're going to establish the, the parameters of that and then we're going to talk about what our, our, our mutual existence with each other will be, will be past that. And, and knowing that that goes to something that's more important than, than you and I playing golf, which is kids with college aspirations. How do we help them? How do we, you know, dip into the network of the ambassadors here to, to, to get it, to get this experience to the right kids who are going to take full advantage of it. And, uh, you know, so it, it's nice to be involved with something. You know, at any point you're there, it's, it's really hard to get mad about a bad golf shot when you know the reasons why all these people have, have come together. And there's just a, such a net positive from, from all of that. Yeah, the, um, the places you, you can go and, and there is an appreciation that clearly you have for that. Is there, you know, you, the Nebraska, have you been to Sandhills, I assume, right? I went last year for the first time. So did I. Yeah. It's Mecca. I was... <laughs> You know, Andy, I, I don't, I've been lucky and uh, in, in through life with my dad originally, dragged me everywhere and got to play some really special places. That's the one place that hung out there. Yeah. And my best friend and I, I finally said, I said, we're doing this. And flew to Denver, took a flight to North Platte on a Saturday night, had a greasy burger and a diner, stayed in a, yeah. I don't know what it was, I think it was called Huskers. What a fantastic hotel. Um, <laughs> you know, got up the next morning, drove 70 miles. We saw three cars in 70 miles. It blew it's a my lonely, mind. That's a lonely drive, that one. I'm telling you that you don't see much. No, you really don't. And then, yeah. and then you get there. And even when you get there, there's a, there's a modesty to the whole environment, the clubhouse. But then you got to get on a cart and go another mile yeah. over a hill. And they should have like an organ playing when you get over the crest of the hill yeah. and you see it. Who did you go with? Uh, I went with some friends of mine. Who did I go with? I went with, uh, actually, uh, I was with Jim Courier, um, who was, uh, yeah. and then uh, I went with a friend, Nob Such, and a, another friend of mine um, named Nat Turner. So it's, it's one of my favorite, favorite four balls. And so uh, we had made plans and, you know, somehow someone figured out how for us to go. And it was, uh, it was amazing. I, obviously being born in Nebraska, similar to you, it was the kind of the one that uh, I hadn't been to, which I felt like I, I wanted to go to. And, um, again, it's just quality will win and, and people will travel and they will like how many other things in your life would you go down that road and then go like, like nothing, but, but that's kind of one of the great things about golf is you will kind of make the extra effort. And when the payoff far outweighs the effort made to, to actually make it happen, it's, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're left with conversations like this. No, it's, it, it's true. It's like, 
wait, my wife's like, where are you going? I'm like, Southwest <laughs> Nebraska. Southwest Nebraska. My wife, my wife the same thing. It's like, wait, what? Like, what, is, what are you doing? Who are you going with? How do funny. you get there? Well, yeah, exactly. You, get, you know, you, you fly into North Platte and you drive, and then she's like, why? Yeah. So, and I, you know, look, with Bill and that, that was a game changing thing. And I think in, yeah. in some degree, it, it really has had an influence on a lot of things as far as if you build it, they will come. Yes. And you, I know you've referred to Sweetens as being like a field of dreams. Like it is that special. And, yeah. and it's not just, okay, we, we got to, it's got to deliver when you get there. It can't be underwhelming when you get there. And I thought Sand Hills, I, I, it, blew, it just blew my mind. We played 70 yep. goals in 22 hours and we could have played 144. We were trying to be yeah. respectful. I, I wanted to just keep going. Yeah, it was one of the, we, the second, the first day we got there, we played 27 and it was like a, a chamber of commerce day. I mean, it was just, it was perfect. And the next day it was blown about 45. It's the oh single hardest golf experience I've ever had. And everyone was smiling when they walked off still. It was, it was great. Um, I want to ask you about like the, the, the voice of the athlete. Um, you're, you're, you've always been righteous, uh, you know, but, but in the, in the same sense, you're, you're open-minded and willing to listen to other people's opinions. I've always been curious from the athlete's point of view, why do you think athletes get so much blowback when they give their opinion on things, whether it be cultural or societal or even political for that matter, where everybody else, it's like, well, I can say it, but how dare you say it? Yeah. What's curious I, I, about that to you? Well, I think I think social mediums haven't really helped that because you don't really get a sense of tone or context very very well with uh, with a written word that can be taken out of place. And um, you know, I I don't know. I know when I played, I was obviously uh, I, I got along with you know media ninety seven percent of the time, but the three percent that's remembered is you know if I was expected to go to my job and and, and be prepared and and be able to kind of know the A, B, and Cs. And, you know, if I wasn't prepared, I would lose. So, you know, my frustrations came from people that, that really didn't do the homework or were disrespectful about, you know, well, you'll roll through this guy. I'm like, the guy's a pro tennis player. We're here at the U.S. Open. Like, you know, I, I would get kind of I would get kind of chippy. Um, I remember one time I, I got in this, this weird argument, and, and it was I probably created it, but it was with uh, – they referred to someone who was uh, – I don't know, maybe 35 in the world. And they, they called, they were like, well, you're, you know, he's a journeyman. And I go, oh. okay. So I go in any other sport, they would almost be considered like in baseball, they would be an all-star. And it's just a, it's just a, it's just a different term that you use. I go there. There were like, you know, I don't know. I'll get the number wrong, but they were with dropouts. There were like 56 guys that year that could claim that they were a major league all-star. And I go, you would look at them a certain way. I go, but you come into this room where it's not a sport you're entirely familiar with and you're covering it because you're based in New York. And the, I go, let, let's, let's, let's draw some parallels before you rush to judgment. And let, let's, you know, let's, let, let's be smart about it. And so I would fight sometimes, but, um, you know, I, I just think for me, I, I craved an, an, an equal playing field, right? You can say, you know, you can say, well, you know, you lost to Roger in the final. Well, you should have just done this. And I would, and, and it, I felt like it was well within my rights to say, yeah, so you don't know anything about that. <laughs> like, like, I actually, I actually value my own opinion more than, than yours when it comes to uh, playing that match, only because you've never played before, ever, not once. You know, and, and so I go, I can't treat your, just as if, it's, if I was going to go uh, 
write a long form essay. I go, I wouldn't expect you to treat my essay uh, on equal footing with what you do daily. You know, and, and, and there's always going to be a given respect because we need you to bring in fans. And I understand the value. And I, I, I listen, what's good for me is good for you and vice versa, or at least should be. But, you know, I can't sit here and, and kowtow to your opinions when I just fundamentally disagree with the words that are coming out of your mouth. You know, so I just wanted it to be an equal playing field. You know, in the years that I lived in Charlotte, covered the Panthers, uh, it, was, it was spooky how the visiting locker room was always – a place where some famous things would be said by head coaches based off of really inane or just stupid questions. Jim Morris said, um, you don't, you know, diddly poo. He said that in the visitor's locker room at Bank of America Stadium. I don't know if you remember this one. This is my all-time favorite. You don't know and you never will. And that was a question about a play call. And, and, and basically, he started the answer by saying, do you know what coverage we were in? Was the linebacker cheating down toward the line of scrimmage? Was there a safety yes. over the top? Was the tight end covered? And and you know, look, I was doing sports radio at the time, and it was it was almost in it was something that it was implied that you had to be critical of of play calling. And after working over there, and being dragged into a into a film room by John Fox one day, and my head literally was blown to smithereens watching one play, yeah. trying to understand the all twenty two. That being said, um, golfers, you don't, you don't go home after one set. And if you dust somebody 6-1 in the first set, you don't then go to the media and go, okay, I'm going to go home, sleep on it, and come back, I'll play the second set. Yeah. You spend time thinking about the challenge of a professional golfer to play around, either be you know, awful or really good and be in a flow state, and then not just go home, but explain yourself to the media have them have you try to project to the next day and get you to a place you haven't arrived at yet, how hard that must be. Because I think yeah. it's one of the hardest things about golf. At the well, I, I think, I think the, the, the one thing, and, you know, I, I obviously, I, I love going back and forth with, with golfers because I just think it's hilarious when I hear the term <laughs> tough walk. Um, but but uh, I, I will say the one thing that, you know, to, to your point of having to grind for four days, I could hit a bad shot in tennis and win a match two and two. Okay. I could, I could have a bad day and squeak out a six and six win. And it doesn't matter like that. My, my day where I shot 77, as long as the guy I was playing against shot 79, I'm still alive. And the 77 doesn't count anymore. Um, not being able to hit like one bad shot can, can ruin your entire tournament. Um, and I, I think just the, the mental pressure of that is, uh, is potentially undersold. Um, you know, maybe maybe football, one bad pass can change the entire thing if it's an interception, one bad decision, um, and that's done under the gun, so I, I have immense respect, but um, the, the, the mental side of just not making a massive mistake over the course of however many days when, when the lines are so fine, I think is, uh, is probably um, the, the, the pressure system that gets ignored, especially outside of Tiger and a couple of others. Um, you, you're, you're not being watched. So someone could say, Oh God, the guy's playing terribly shot 78. And it could be like, well, I actually came up a foot short on a club and, you know, it doesn't mean that you necessarily played horrendously. And so um, I, I think the larger point we're getting to is it's, it's a lot easier to, to pull coals than actually suggest a solution. Yeah. I, I, you know, for someone like yourself, and I think it's, you know, tennis players from a physical standpoint, you know, it's rare, you know, Rogers a unicorn. It's, it's, you know, it just yeah. doesn't happen. A Borg, I believe, I know he came back. I think he was 26 when he walked. Um, yeah. the, the physical toll that it takes, it's not like a gymnast, 
but but it's not it's not that far away whereas golf you can meander in a in a good way well into your 40s i mean phil's yeah. 49 tiger's 44 but but young people who are who are better conditioned and and believe at a very young age that they can do really really special things you think it's harder or easy to be a professional athlete now than it was 20 years ago um i i, I got to say Maybe, so I, I, I don't give enough credit to social media. Some people get like really affected by what's said. Um, I just never did. I could, I could care less of what some stranger said. Like I, I just don't, it, it didn't really register with me. So taking that part out of the equation and taking my own uh, sensitivity bias to that and, 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 and not kind of underselling what other people are, are experiencing and feeling. Um, it, it is a little easier now. I mean, if you look at, you know, the way people travel in baseball or, um, you know, the money in tennis now dictates that people can actually have teams. So when I started on tour, there was a trainer in the locker room and I'd have to stay at the courts for another four hours to get all the treatment I wanted. And then, uh, you know, three or four years in, I could, I just hired my own person and set up my own shop at our hotel and I would just go home and do it and be kind of away from everything. So, um, you know, I, I'm, it's, it's a tricky question because I think, uh, top players, uh, it's probably easier with teams and, and, and what you have as far as access and everything else. But then you bring in, uh, you know, the things we've been talking about with social mediums and the fact that you have to respond so often. Um, you're expected to be in a good mood now every day, whereas the stories we tell about athletes from past, there's kind of like a, you, you, you kind of smile about people throwing tantrums. Like, what would that look like now? Like, what would John McEnroe, how would the coverage of John McEnroe look now? It, it would be like he wouldn't be able to breathe. It would be suffocating. Like Jimmy Con, I mean, he met, I love Jimmy Connors. Like the the things that those guys used to do, and the way that it would be, it, it would basically they would equate them to the worst humans of all time because they're immature and throwing tantrums on on a tennis court. So I, I'm having a hard time answering that question clearly because the the trade off between what you have as far as technology and the fact that you know you a knee surgery is no longer a ten month thing and you can be back out in four weeks is so the trade off between the physical. Uh, things that have become a lot easier versus uh coverage and kind of being in a bubble i, I the trade-off I, I don't know maybe we'll call it net neutral and that does nothing for your question i'm, I'm afraid no I, I i no look i think that look there, there are certain advantages to to you know nutrition fitness preparation all those things but i i i really believe that social media is it does affect performance um and and if you consider let's say a wide receiver from university of nebraska um, you know, drops, you know, drops a pass down the sideline. You think that when he's going back to the sideline, that that that, that what is going on in Twitter may not enter yeah. into his mind and then yeah. affect him in the next series. And you know, if if Connors or McEnroe did what they what they did do, Mike Lupica, they didn't have to wait for the next day for the article. The verdict was in by the time the match well, was over from hundreds of thousands of people. The other thing is like to get that Lupica take, you would actually have to be sitting in front of a tee watching him say it, right? And then, but then past that, so that, that's your own choice, right? But then past that, it doesn't get repeated ad nauseum on a social, in a meme, you know, to, to trivialize, uh, you know, it, it became, it becomes really easy to make fun of someone like a Tom Brady, who is an all-timer athlete, hit some bad shots in golf and all of a sudden people are like, you know, talking about him like he's a, like a, like a circus clown or something. I mean, like it's, it's so quick to kind of run right through respect into like some jokey meme. It's just a different, it's just a completely different thing now.
All right, before I let you out of here, I've got to hit you on a few things. Tonight, it's good timing. Uh, NBC Sportsnet is re-airing your hosting of Saturday Night Live. They've been oh, doing a lot that. of these. Yes, all week they've been doing it, 10 o'clock Eastern uh, on this Wednesday night. Um, wow. they, they re-aired Peyton's. They re-aired Brady's, Michael. When you get that call, yeah. and, and that is that is one of the, 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 the great franchises of all time in American, yeah. you know, pop culture. Were you were you uptight? Were you what was it, what was the experience like? I was probably too young and dumb to be uptight. Um, I uh, I was it, was it was just weird. It was a, just a whirlwind because I came from Paris, where the week before I had gotten to the number one ranking for the first time, and then there was an off week, which we had filled with uh, Saturday Night Live. So I was. Uh, and then the year-end championships, there's like the tour championships, but there's only eight of us um, invited, was going to be, I was in the running, Roger was in the running, and Juan Carlos Ferrero was all, we were in the running for, for number one in the world. So I'm kind of trying to balance all this stuff. So I would literally go hit out at uh, Arthur Ashe Stadium. I would go hit out there, you know, two, three hours in the morning, go back into the city and then rehearse for eight hours. And then all the while I'm trying to like come to terms with uh, so the scheduling wasn't, wasn't super responsible, but, um, I remember then left Saturday Night Live. I didn't go to the after party. I literally walked off stage onto a plane to Houston, practice the next day. And then, you know, so 36 hours after I was off stage at Saturday Night Live, I was playing for the number one year end ranking, uh, in, in Houston, Texas. So it was, it was all kind of a whirlwind. Um, I, there is, <laughs> so I probably shouldn't say this, but I will. Uh, I, so before the show actually starts, you do. A full run through so hair and makeup they run through it they shoot it as if it's an actual show right so you get a, a feel for pacing all the stuff's going on I was a dumpster fire and I may not have been much better during the actual show but uh, I get to my lock uh, to the locker room or the, the dressing room and I had a buddy and he's sitting there with a six-pack that he had gone down he, he had gone down uh, to the you know one of the delis downstairs and gotten a six-pack and he goes he goes, I only watched the first half of it, but it, 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 if it didn't get much better, I figured you'd need a couple of these. So I had two beers, went and did the opening monologue, and we were fine from there. <laughs> that, that, you know what? I did something similar. Tim Rosenford, the longtime writer, yeah. you know, Golf Channel Insider, I played in, at the Medalist member guest with him, and he was so bad during a practice round, he quit after nine holes. Yeah. He's like, I can't do this anymore. I'm like, Tim, it's a practice round. So he went and hit balls for like two hours. And, and we got there the next morning for the first round. He goes, I think I've got it. I said, no, you don't. I said, come with me. I took him into the grill room at 7 a.m. And I made him drink two Miller Lights. And his yeah. nickname, that it was only mine, was Tupac. Uh, and he was, <laughs> he was totally chill. Sure. He wasn't, I mean, he wasn't world beater, but he was, yeah. you know, he was confident. Um, so you did your own little Tupac. Um, it's it's. I also wanted to be immune to, like, nerves and having to, like, because you're – they, they have the stuff written on the boards and they, they kind of hide them in your eye line, like strategically. So if you need to reference it, you can actually read off of it. And I was so paranoid of not being able to find my eye line and to be like looking around for it awkwardly that I, I, I tried to memorize all the lines. So for the entire episode, I just had it memorized because I wasn't going to leave it the chance. I was scared someone wasn't going to be standing where they were supposed to. And I was just going to be sitting there with nothing to say. It scared the living crap out of me. <laughs> All right, the um, the the dogs. Why 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 did you name one of the dogs Bob Costas? 
because really, <laughs> you know, the, the naming of an animal is, is I would consider to be an homage, but I, that doesn't really seem like one for Bob. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know the actual uh, a great answer. I, we, we have this thing where we like our dogs to have first and last names. Um, so, when, you know, it's like a formal night or you, you, we, I just think it's kind of funny. And uh, we were thinking about Bob and we were running through last names and we said Casas and we all kind of look at each other like, no one's going to do that. It's kind of funny. But the, the greatest thing ever is when, the, uh, when we get a call from the vet, um, we insist that they use the first, the first and last. And last. Yeah, so they call and they go, Bob, Bob Costas is ready to be picked up. And I just picture someone picking Bob Costas up. And I, it's the, like, that visual alone has, 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 has given me lots of joy over the years. <laughs> and, and Billie Jean King as well? So Billie, Billie Jean is, is for Billie Jean. Yeah, so Billie Jean. Uh, but that, that, was just after, uh, that was just after Billie Jean King. That, that, that's more of an homage. The other one is just, I just pictured my conversations with the vet talking about Bob Costas. And, and, and I got I to gotta like, be honest, it's one of the best calls of all time. Um, oh, like, right. Bob, Bob, Bob Costas got his, his, his toenails clipped. I think it's just hilarious. I just can't stop laughing. So I, it, it, it was, it was well, actually, I can, that, that one is transferable. I can actually <laughs> see that one. Um, all right. Very quickly. Give me a little scouting report on the, the these following names as golfers. Yep. Sampras. A uh, great golfer. Uh, easy power can hit it. I mean, he, he's not as a, uh, you know, if he could get through, his only flaw in his golf game is that if he has to wait for anyone on the golf course, he just leaves. He could be three under through seven holes, and he's like, oh, man, I just can't do this. You know, he'll invite guests out, and he'll just be like, guys, I, I can't do this. <laughs> but he is, he bombs the ball. He can, he can hit it far. All right. How about Agassi? Does he play left-handed? I don't know that I've seen Andre play. I don't know that he plays much. Um, okay. I know, so Jim Courier, I don't know if he's on your list. He's, he's yeah. right-handed player really good golfer, two, three handicap, like very golfy, like hits good chips, makes six footers, like it plays really well. Yeah, Jim, Jim played some baseball growing up. I know he's a Reds yeah. fan, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, Jim is, Jim's a good, good, real good golfer. Okay, um, James Blake. Good, he's, what is he, six or an eight? I know he's got, uh, you know, he, he's got the spine that looks like a question mark from <laughs> scoliosis when he was a kid, so that gets into his golf swing a little bit. It doesn't exactly... Doesn't exactly look right. I would I would tell James that uh, that uh, he, he, not the prettiest golf swing, but uh, effective. All right, and then the last one, and I played with this guy. So, and he's obviously very good. Uh, but Marty Fish, who's your boy? Yeah. Um, I think personally, and again, Marty's a really fine player, a really yeah. fine amateur player. But I think that he gets worse the closer he gets to the hole. You know what I mean? Like he's, yeah. he's, he is, he, he, he flights the ball like guys who, you know, maybe trying to make a living playing the game yeah. of golf. If, if Marty could chip and putt anywhere close to the way that he hits full shots. Yeah. I'm not saying you can make a living. And I, I did this conversation with him on this podcast last year and he was explaining why he can't make a living playing golf. And it, and it makes, and he's right. Him and Mark Mulder are really good, but your thoughts about Marty as a golfer. Yeah. So like you're saying, as far as ball striking, I'll play with the tour pro. Then the next day I'll play with Marty. I'm like, okay, he hits it better. I mean, he, he actually hits this high draw on command. He hits this high cut on command. It's, 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 uh, it's, it creates a, a source of envy. Um, one Marty, Marty's a joke. Cause he, he like, 
he broke an ankle going into like the Bel Air Club Championship, hadn't played for three months and, and, and went out and won it. If he, his hands are good enough, right, where he, if, I think it's just a matter of time spent. And his just natural hand-eye, I mean, he's the guy who went into batting practice at Shea Stadium and hit 10 balls out in batting practice. Like, he's just, he's just otherworldly as far as hand-eye coordination, and, and he's, like, loose. He can throw a football. Um, he, he gets in his own head about his putting. Uh, I've seen him actually chip really well. I think the chipping is more just time spent, but I think he gets in his own head space with putting a little bit. Yeah, he's not – I mean, look, there's no reason why you or him or anybody who, who's already made a living doing something else should literally be grinding to the degree yeah. that you would. Uh, and he doesn't appear to be that kind of person. No. That he wants to play golf. Yeah. He wants to play golf. He wants to have a money match. And yeah. that's how he – that's where the satisfaction comes. Yeah, well, he also – I mean, I, I think similar to what we touched on earlier, he, he played a couple of gateway events and made the cut at a, yes. a Canadian PGA event. Like, he's, he, he plays great, but he's going – Okay, so but he's also played one sport well enough to understand what it takes. He goes, okay, so am I gonna spend six hours a day doing this so I can become an maybe an average gateway player? Like if that's my upside, and he's like, no, obviously not. Like I'm gonna go out and play matches, and I'm gonna go make fun of people on the golf course, and I'm gonna go, you know, just be really, really good. I'm just gonna be like a casual plus two, and 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 uh, and I'm fine with that. All right, last thing. Um... Aside from, and I would imagine once there is some level of normalcy that returns, you'll, you'll, you'll get to Sweden's Cove and, and go with some friends, and that's, I'm sure, a very happy place. Is there yeah. some place that is already wife-approved that you're going to over the next three months? Are, are you, uh, do you have any trips yeah, online? So, so next, uh, you're talking about specific to golf, correct? Yeah. Yeah, so actually next week I'm going to go. It's the first time I've gone, uh, obviously, on a trip to play golf. Um, for a, a bit of a different reason, but um, I'm going to a Hoopy Match Club uh, next week, which is uh, which is a great spot awesome. um, that I'm that I'm lucky enough to be able to uh, to go to. Um, but uh, sorry, something's beeping in our room. Anyway, uh, but uh, I'll I'll go there. They've kind of shifted there. Normally, it's a huge social space, and it's just you you play, but more importantly, everyone kind of ha spends time. I'm not sure if you've been there, but it's I have. It's a, it's a great it's place. Awesome. The vibe is really cool. And apparently they're actually just taking food and delivering it to the dorms right now. And, and so the, the spacing is there. And so I, that, that made me feel uh, okay uh, about kind of landing and then um, also being a, a responsible citizen uh, right now. So, uh, but I'm not going to lie. I'm pretty excited to, uh, to go uh, some destination golf and, and, and walk a proper 18 or 22. They have 22 uh, natural holes on the, on, on the property. So uh, I'm excited about that, but um, this will definitely be the lightest uh, golf itinerary I've ever had uh, post-career for a summer. Yeah, you know, the thing about Ohoopy that I was, and, and Michael Walrath nailed it in every respect. Yes. And Gil, Gil built something that is just, just complete joy. Um, yes. Is when I walked in my room and I, I looked around, and first, you know, what do you always do? You look for the remote, and then you grab the remote, and then you look to what wall the TV's on. And there are no television because you're not going to hide in your room yep. and run away from people. You're going to yep. gather together, which, you know, right now it seems like, you know, that's not ideal. But you know what? Things will get back to normal. It's a special place. Uh, have a great time. And, and thank you for giving uh, all this time to kind of share your thoughts on a lot of stuff. And I really appreciate it. I appreciate you, Gary. Thank you.